Hey everyone, it's Adrienne here. I hope you're all having a great start to the week. So for today's episode, I am joined by Dean Leak. Dean is a mind coach and we dive into the importance of setting boundaries, the pros and cons of perfectionism and how to stop caring so much about what other people think. I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week, I speak to a variety of guests, from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, changemakers and innovators, to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by, and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire, so I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. There's so many topics that we are going to dive into today. And I know that for regular listeners of this podcast, this is going to be a popular one. Because to be honest with you, Dean, I get asked a lot of questions that I feel like you, as a mindset coach, will be able to answer. So for anyone listening who doesn't know much about you or your work or what you do, could you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and also into mindset coaching? What is mindset coaching? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in summary, I help people, individuals or organisations take control of their life, um, unlock their potential and just help people be their best. So I've spent the last 15 years in elite sports, working with business leaders, working in health health and fitness, really understanding and synthesising, I guess, common patterns in human behaviour, really understanding what that process looks like to become confident, fulfilled, happy, or whatever it is that person's trying to achieve. So using that experience, really fascinated by psychology, looking at the evidence, I created a method called the PAC. And in summary, again, that is really just about helping people to understand and find their passion, understand their purpose, really develop psychological awareness about themselves, how to communicate with others, how to understand the environment around them, and then really create a system that we co-create together to help them take committed action. And typically with my approach, and I think it's really important to emphasize this, human beings are really complex, like really beautifully nuanced. So we've got to take a really individualized approach. So whilst I provide a framework and guidance, it's really about putting the individual at the heart of that support. So really it's about helping them to develop ownership, take responsibility for their development, help them to create the change and become the person that they want to be. So I guess, you know, I'm like a detective. I want to gather as much information as possible. I want to help them understand their minds and the world that they are operating in. And I guess with a lot of this work, really trying to get to a position where they're really understanding who they want to be. So we always start at that identity level because typically without having an understanding of who we want to be and what our values are, we typically get guided by our mind, which is automated. It's based on survival. It, Whilst it isn't just about being positive or negative, it can sometimes actually be quite unhelpful. So I'm there just to really try and help them to figure out a way forwards in whatever that is. It's not my job to tell them, but just to be a part of their support team. Mm, and so you mentioned that, you know, working with elite sports people and working in, you know, I work in the fitness and wellness space too. And I know that mind coaching, uh, hypnotherapy, visualization, I know these are all quite popular things in the sports and performance world, but I feel like they're becoming more mainstream and more more popular for, for people outside of that industry as well. So why do people, you know, who needs a mind coach? Why do people need a mind coach? If you're not an elite sports person, are these things that we can all apply to our lives? Yeah, I think it really applies to everyone. I worked with people from all different types of backgrounds, whether it's people wanting to have a better balance with their life, whether it's trying to lose weight, whether it's trying to build a business, whether it's trying to, um, you know, manage their anxiety, a real different, you know, plethora of people. Um, and typically what I've noticed, and and it's at the heart of my approach, I tend to see that people have really good intentions to go and achieve a goal. So they start at that point of, I want to go and achieve something. 
Um, and what I tend to see is that that often starts with that feeling of motivation. So one day they'll wake up and they'll feel really inspired um, by something that they perhaps saw on Instagram. They feel really energized by that feeling within them. And they say, right, I'm going to change right now. So things that you might typically hear are things like, I'm going to lose 20 pounds or I'm going to stop procrastinating or I'm going to finally build that business, that side hustle that I've always dreamed of. And then they start putting those things in place. They use lots of energy, often with an all or nothing approach to run towards that goal. And then they start to see progress, which they like, of course. And then this is where the real challenge comes. And because we've used motivation, which is a feeling, willpower and energy does run out. And we haven't actually developed the tools to be able to manage that inner critic that says things like, you know, it's really hard. Is it worth it? Am I strong enough to succeed? Do I have the right tools in place to um, manage that internal dialogue? And, and that's the challenge that I see is that we often start by setting goals, but we don't have a system in place and have tools to be able to navigate those difficulties that we are inevitably going to face along the way. So whether it is an Olympic athlete that's striving for that purpose of winning an Olympic gold medal and inspiring the nation, you know, it is really difficult. Um, and, you know, there are going to be obstacles along the way. So having a mindset coach or someone who has an expertise to help you understand your mind can be really helpful to avoid you going round in circles and, you know, start stopping your whole life. So this mm -hmm. is about creating a, a long-term method. And I notice as well, Adrian, the stuff that you do, and I love that idea of performance innovation. And when we look at youngsters these days, I wonder whether psychological awareness and understanding what's going on for us psychologically is going to be a really key skill that is going to help us develop long-term shifts in behaviour. Um, because we're facing a world of convenience, you know, companies that are really fighting for our attention. People are looking for shortcuts and quick wins, and we've seen that through social media. So I'm thinking, you know, we look at Olympic sport and we look at what businesses are doing, and there's lots of innovation out there. But I'm wondering whether actually, like, less is more. How do we really tap into understanding who we want to be? And how do we start to create choice and live the life that we want in amongst all the distractions that are in front of us? Mm, absolutely there's so many distractions I mean I'm someone I always say oh I'm easily distracted but to be honest as you described in this world aren't we all easily distracted and there's a few things that you mentioned then one being around around uh, you know understanding our our purpose our values like who we are what do we actually want another around motivation because I mean that comes up every single day of my life I must say the word motivation or someone will ask me about motivation you know whether it's how to stay motivated what motivates them feeling a lack of motivation especially given the last year or two feels like it's been two now um so that you know I love the way that you talk about well yeah you start with motivation and actually it's not something that can be sustained I think it's an oxymoron to kind of say how do you stay motivated because it is that that feeling that helps you to start but also you mentioned the word change now I am constantly talking about change about embracing change you know in my book I really advocate for that it's never too late to, to change change your habits change your mind change your life you know I talk a lot about neuroplasticity and discovering that really for me was just a game changer but my question for you Dean when it comes to change is you know why is it that some people tend to be more open to change than others some people crave change myself included others you know people some people fear change they really like routine they like to know exactly you know they like to repeat the same things day after day year after year they, they're creatures of habit and they might find change really really daunting and difficult so yeah why is it that some people seem to be able to embrace change more than others yeah it's a really good question and it's one that's definitely prevalent now um given the time that we're facing and that the world is rapidly changing so you know if we're to first of all define change Really, it's when something becomes different. So biologically, we're actually wired to resist change. So change is really, really difficult. Um, and I think from the outset, it's really important that we, we start to accept that it is really difficult and beginning by acknowledging that. And, you know, change provokes a sense of loss. It's really hard work. It creates a sense of uncertainty. There's an unknown, okay? Mm -hmm. So it creates that sense of discomfort, that unwanted feelings within us when 
changes in front of us. And what I find when I'm working with clients or I experience this myself, that it isn't often the event that causes the discomfort or challenge. It's the psychological experience of change that actually causes us the pain, causes us the suffering. So we need to develop some tools that can help us navigate change because change isn't going away. And I really like the quote, and hopefully I'll get this right and I don't do a hash job of this, but it's a famous um, Chinese proverb. And it goes something like, when the winds of change blow, some people build walls and others build windmills. And I think it's just a really nice quote that brings to life that we can either fight against it and we can, tr- we can avoid it or we can actually embrace it and we can work with it. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like how we work with it, I think fundamentally understanding that human beings are built for survival. So being able to adapt to change is really difficult, but actually let's just start to normalise that. Um, because we don't like uncertainty, because we don't like lack of control, and it's part of human beings' survival mechanism, we can actually start to work with that. So just accept that change is inevitable. And what we can start to do is apply some techniques, such as just noticing the experience that we're feeling. So being really attuned and aware of what's happening to us, both from a physical perspective and from a psychological perspective. And really noticing through that change period whatever that might be for you whether that's a loss or whether that's potentially a change in your job role or whether that's you building in new habits you know what behaviors are not helpful in your life at the moment because often that's the that's the symptom of some underlying feelings or thoughts or emotions that you're experiencing and I think in all of this we're trying to get to a position of being present in the moment so developing the ability to press the pause button and sit with that discomfort because that discomfort is something that isn't necessarily going to go away so how do we develop techniques to just take a deep breath which as we know activates the parasympathetic nervous system helps calm us down and fundamentally we are not our thoughts and feelings and it's something that I talk a lot about so when we're going through change which brings about thoughts and feelings that we perhaps don't like the feelings of discomfort those thoughts and feelings are not us. But we have to create that space to be able to choose how we want to respond. Mm. And that's where I think values come in as being really important because values become our anchor for guiding our behaviour when we want to move forward. So when mm. we talk about habits, we can't necessarily remove habits, but we can replace them. And we replace them by getting really committed to action that's going to help serve us in the long run. And that's where if we've got clarity of our values, then we can really start to align our day. We can start to look at how we want to be in accordance to those and getting really consistent and persistent in delivering those so that we actually start to become the person that we want to be. So one day at a time, really focusing on those small things that make the biggest difference during that period of change. Yeah, so before we dive into those those values and understanding how we identify them, before we jump into that, you know, when you talked about change then and you said, you know, it's it's human nature to avoid change because we don't like discomfort and we don't like change and it's hard. And acknowledging that, I completely, yeah, I really hear that, you know, acknowledge that it is hard and that's okay. But what about the other side of the coin? What about, you know, when you crave change, when it's exciting, when you want change, when you say, you know, I think everyone's had a feeling in their life at some point where they go, enough is enough. I want to make a change. It could be big, it could be small, it could be just dyeing your hair, cutting your hair, moving to a new city, changing your job. But, you know, some people, they they almost seem addicted to change, actually. They can't stay, you know, still in anything because they just want the next thing or they want to change and change and try again, try again, try again. And I think I sometimes flip between yeah, between the two, actually. So what's going on there when we crave change and when we're excited about constant change? Yeah, I think whatever your narrative is around change, whether that's, you know, avoiding change or whether it's actually changing a lot, I think we've got to ask ourselves the question, like, how do I want to be? Because when we can get clarity on that, then we can actually start to build in behaviours that help serve us in that direction. So whatever your experiences are around change, whether that's avoidance and avoiding situations as a way to mask and cope with the feelings that you don't like, 
or whether that's actually you know constantly changing jobs or constantly jumping and changing in relationships i think that's where we start to pause take that deep breath spend some time journaling and going what is it that i want because that's where human beings actually come about you know that prefrontal cortex that other animals don't have that ability for us to think rationally about what we want and what our values are and and that becomes our guide that becomes the thing that actually you know guides us through our life and i think it's just being able to stop sometimes and go i'm noticing that i'm having these thoughts and feelings they're not rules they are a result of my experiences that i've faced whether that's through my upbringing or the environments that i've spent my time in whether that's through my education system you know and 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 that's almost on autopilot this brain this mind that we've got that's got this incredible ability to tell stories and actually i have a choice in this i have the responsibility to choose how i want to live my life and i think that's really exciting and and a skill that we can all develop yeah i agree i mean i'm someone like i said i flip between this idea of wanting change craving change and then being like oh i've you know i've got some things that i guess are really consistent pillars actually and maybe that is my values you know those consistent pillars they never change but how i explore them and what i do on a day-to-day basis those things do change so yeah let's get into that with with values and actually understanding how do we even identify as individuals you know what our values are yeah, so I've got a story to um, tell on some experience that I had when I was on a leadership course. So I was really fortunate um, a while back to have been selected amongst a really small cohort of leaders in the UK sports system to go on an 18 month programme where we just really explored what leadership is, you know, really tried to develop skills around leadership. And we went on uh, a very experiential programme for a couple of days called Horse Whispering. Now, for listeners, they might be thinking, what is Dean talking about? Like, how could it possibly be that you can go and spend some time with horses and that can really help you with your leadership skills in terms of how you communicate and understand others? And when you experience spending time with horses, they really give you a blunt kind of feedback. So horses do not feel embarrassed by reacting authentically in front of you. They do not wonder what you'll think they're not concerned with hurting your feelings they don't lie they essentially respond as a mirror to your behavior and your beliefs so the experience of horses is all about using non-verbal communication and body language to lead horses so it was the first session that we had as a cohort so again with going back to change and uncertainty it felt really uncertain everyone felt a bit vulnerable you know i'm around these leaders and we're all thinking blimey there's some great people here you know We've got to be on form. So we turn up and the instructors are lovely and they explain to us that we're going to go down to the stables. And when we get down there, there's going to be 10 horses. And we're not going to overthink this, but we'd just like you to go down there and just spend some time with the horses. Um, And we just want you to notice what's going on. We just want you to be really present in the moment. And we just want you to find a connection with a horse. So I'm thinking, what is all this about? Like, how is this possibly going to relate to leadership? Like, what am I going to get out of this? I'm thinking, you know, I spent some time with horses, so this is going to be no problem. So we walk down there and um, these horses are powerful. You know, the, the stature and the presence of these horses is, is unbelievable. If you've never done anything like this, so I would 100% encourage it. So we go down and I notice a horse. Um, I find out later that his name is Levi. And he was really playful. He was really sociable, like he was having fun with other horses. So I thought, yeah can definitely see that in me like we're going to build a great relationship and he comes over and he when he comes over again our job is just to be present in the moment so he comes over and I start stroking his face and you know it's really daunting being in front of that horse not knowing what to expect in terms of whether he's going to react to you or are you going to be able to build that trust so I'm stroking his face and then he starts kind of sniffing on my arm And I'm like, great, we're building this relationship. This is going really well. And then he starts to kind of nip on my arm. And I'm like, okay, well, this must be normal. You know, he's building a relationship here. You know, imagine if a human being is kind of just scratching your arm. It isn't going to hurt. And then all of a sudden he locks onto my arm and he starts biting. And I paused for a moment. I was like, this isn't right. So I ripped my arm out. It created a bit of a scene. The instructor come over and goes, Dean, what has just happened? Because Levi, 
got really upset and he ran away. The team came around and was like, Dean, what's just happened? Um, and the instructor said to me, Dean, this has never happened before. So I'm thinking, oh my God, like, why me? What have I done? <laughs> Sorry what, what... to interrupt, but did you have like a jacket on? Do you have bare skin on your arm? Like, what's the situation with your arm right now? Yeah, no, it's um, it's not looking that pleasant. It's definitely bruised and there's some blood and it looks pretty kind of, yeah, it it, it looks like it's definitely been bitten. Were so you wearing I, a t-shirt or were you wearing I, a long I, I, sleeve? I had a jumper on, I had a jumper on. So Right, so it's gone not... through the jumper and it's actually bleeding. Yeah, yeah, so it's gone through the jumper. Um, so we go back into the stable and we just have a debrief. And the instructor came up to me and these guys are lovely. They just, they know exactly what they're doing. And he said to me, Dean, I've just heard what happened. Why didn't you hit Levi round the head to get him off of you when he started sniffing your arm? You lack total boundaries. And I literally, when he said that to me, it was like this cloud had come over my head and all of a sudden it made total sense. I was like, oh my God, I have no boundaries. And it almost, I felt like my life played out in front of me because my emotions and feelings were really high at that moment because I felt embarrassed, I felt shame. The group were lovely, so it was really vulnerable. But having just come out of a difficult relationship and just looking at kind of like how I've acted and been in relationships, both in a personal and work context, I just realised that I lack total boundaries. And that wasn't the horse's fault. It was my responsibility to develop boundaries. And mm. for me, the real lessons within all of this is that you know, the only time that we're alive is when we're being present in the moment. And when I was with Levi, I wasn't present. My mind was wandering all over the place. I was worrying about a conversation that I'd had early in the morning. And the horses pick up on this. Mm. And if you don't have boundaries, like you will get hurt. And we start to develop boundaries through getting clarity on what our values are. And for me, that's being really aware of how your mind is wandering and just being able to notice notice that and it's a real skill so how much do we spend our time really present in the moment eye contact you know really listening to what somebody's saying and for me this taught me that big lesson and I think really key as well is just being utterly curious and open to learning which is something that I've always been you know really focused on in my life because I'm fascinated in humans and psychology so really seeking to understand because I could have easily blamed Levi <laughs> or actually, you know, there's this great learning opportunity in front of me to take responsibility for what happened. So it isn't about what happens to you. It's how you respond to it in the moment that is of real value. And um, I, I wow. joke and say that Levi was my greatest mentor to, to this current day because he, he taught me the greatest lesson that I've ever learned. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned just at the end then around you didn't blame Levi, you know, you took responsibility and actually, gosh, the blame and the responsibility conversation, you know, that's a whole conversation because I think when things happen in life, it's very easy, of course, for us to say this happened to me or this happened, this person did this or this person didn't do X, Y or Z and therefore you know, not taking responsibility and going, well, what part did you play in that? You know, how much of how much of your life essentially are you willing to be responsible for and how much are you telling yourself that story that yeah this happened to me or I didn't get this opportunity or whatever but also you said that the boundaries thing you know like I oh my gosh when you were talking then I was thinking like wow a lot of people in my life talk about boundaries and when they say oh you know recently I read this book and I've set these boundaries and I no longer do this or I no longer do that and it they have this real assertion and this confidence to say you know what I know what's best for me right now and I can't give that person my time or I can't do these things or you know I'm gonna be turned on my out of office or my emails phone whatever it is they're setting boundaries and I'm like wow good for you mm. and then I'm thinking mm, can how do you actually do that so for example mm. if you are someone who's thinking okay whether it's in relationships whether it's in your career with your boss or how do you actually yeah start to build the confidence or, or test test it out and kind of say right how can you start setting boundaries if you're someone who finds that really, really difficult? If you say yes, if you find it really hard to say no to people's requests, then yeah, how can the how can people start to set boundaries? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm definitely not advocating going to get um, bitten by a horse or anything like that. <laughs> so <laughs> surface your values. And, and actually, like, it clearly wasn't a bite. You know, it, it's um, it was just my story at the time of what happened. But in terms of developing values um th there's there's several ways in which you can do this 
And I think the key thing is that we already have values. So we already have experiences and education and, you know, interactions with others in events that actually have values within us. So there's some questions that we could ask ourselves. And it's really simple things like, you know, what actually matters to me in my life? And a lot of this is spending time actually thinking about creating that person that you really want to be. So what matters to me in life? Who do I want to be? You know, there's some, I guess, slightly more morbid questions that we could ask around, you know, imagine that you were watching your own funeral and, you know, you're hearing loved ones describe you and your life. Like, what would you want them to say about you? Hmm. What advice would you give to loved ones? You know, and the point being is that are you living your own advice? So really get into a position, and I think we could overthink this, but get into a position where we've got to three or five values that feel right and really define what that means. So how many times do you go into a company or you hear somebody talk about their values and you just don't see it being lived out or you ask them and they can't explain it? So I think what's really valuable about values is, number one, defining what it means to you personally. So if your value is about courage okay but what is it about courage that really matters to you if it's about being kind well let's define a little bit more about what we mean about kindness mm. and then i think critically it's got to happen at a behavior level so we talk about we can't remove habits and we can only replace them this is about taking committed action with behaviors that are aligned to the values so if it's about courage for instance and you're somebody who perhaps finds it difficult speaking on Zoom calls because you're worried about what people might think. You might look stupid or you might make a mistake. The way that we can overcome that is go, OK, well, what's really important to me is courage. OK, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to commit to asking a question on that call. Even though I feel really uncomfortable with that, I'm going to do it because that's going to help me and serve me in the long run to be the person that I want to be. So we've really got to go, what's our values? But most importantly, what tangible behaviours can I commit to this week consistently and persistently mm. that's going to make the difference to be the person that I want? Yeah, because those that example, you know, you said living in actions and actually kind of living in line with your values. You're totally right. People talk all the time, I think, about their their values or you hear brands talking about brand values or personal. And it does seem like... Often I think, if I'm honest, people pick these values that just sound good. You know, it's like, oh, I should say that my most important value is community or my post, most of your family or, you know, and, and really for a lot of people, their actions say opposite to that. They might say that their values, if you were to look at their actions, they might say their values are making money or their value and it's not to say that shouldn't be but if that is your value I think sometimes just owning and being again you talk about awareness owning it and saying okay I've done that in the past and gone these are my values but actually what hierarchy do they come because I think once you can own them and say you know what this is the most important thing to me above all else so if it's for example freedom time you know I value my freedom I value my time understanding why has really given me I think the confidence to be like this is important to me. So I need to make it a priority and I need to, as you said, make it an action, not just a, uh, well, what do you value? I value this. How do you actually live that? And again, bringing it back to, to the second part of the question about boundaries, once you have those values and you start to practice them, yeah, how can you, I guess, maybe do, communicate them to others or, or set boundaries for yourself to make sure that you're, you know, living in alignment with those? Yeah, totally. So, you know, a, a real... Um obvious one that I'm having a conversation with a lot with people particularly in the health and fitness industry that are, are developing and have developed through this COVID period a more healthy lifestyle so they're really worried about actually going back into whatever it's going to be and spending time with friends down the pub um, and being in restaurants where perhaps there's going to be all that access to that food so this is the great opportunity because what we tend to do is we'll turn up to those situations and what happens is that the brain actually works as a predictor. So what we typically think or what we've learned is that the brain goes to an environment and then it responds in that environment. But what actually happens, it's already predicting. So if we were just to rely on turning up to the restaurant and saying to our friends, no, I don't want that drink or no, I don't want to have that shot of drink or whatever it might be, you know, our, our brain works on patterns. So it's going to go back to what it's always known. 
So actually, what we need to do is have a plan and have a system in place to go, actually, when I'm talking about having balance, what does that play out like in these scenarios? You know, how do I want to react to my friends that perhaps might put pressure on me because they want to have a good time? Or when um, somebody offers me a drink, how am I going to respond to that that's going to be in alignment with the person that I want to be? And it's really, really hard. Mm. And I think the really key thing here is that like, this is a journey. I don't think we ever get to a position where we're the complete person or that we've got to that state of total achievement. I think we're always walking in that direction to self-improvement. So we're going to fall off. We're going to face obstacles that perhaps we don't meet in, in the expectation that we'd like. And it's just about how we respond and how we get back onto that journey. That's really key. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, and you, you know, you'd put out a lot of content on Instagram with, you know, with carousels and like lots of information that people can kind of save and take away and kind of reflect on. And one that I saw recently was about exactly that it was about how to stop caring too much about what other people think so you gave the example then of kind of you know like kind of a peer pressure feeling or or maybe well what's this person going to think if I'm not drinking or what's this person going to think if I you know yeah quit my job or whatever it is so this is something that I think might surprise people about me because people will think that because I'm an extrovert and because I'm confident and I a lot of the work that I do is around you know speaking and I think people assume that extroverts or confident people don't care what other people think you know they, they you must you must not care that's how you do it but actually yeah I'm I do care sometimes I think I care too much you know I'm a human being for, you know I brought out my first book at the start of the year and I was like oh my goodness you know putting yourself out there putting your words your thoughts your feelings I do care what people think I read the reviews you know I read the good reviews I read the bad reviews I you know I I care and sometimes like I say if you care deeply not just about your work but about other people's perceptions of you I certainly think that it can be limiting like I said this is a very personal one for me but yeah thinking about oh what does this person think what does that person think that might you know in homeschooling like what's the teacher going to think when he sees the, the the work that I'm uploading is am I doing enough work with Jude am I not doing enough work am I just constant it can be yeah I think very debilitating so how do we stop caring what other people think please tell us because I need this info <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it's it's a really interesting one. And I think it's like so relevant in today. So as much as we say that we don't care, and as you just articulated, we definitely do. And it's a spectrum. Like some people spend most of their life being reliant and totally obsessed with what people think. And then some people perhaps less so, but I think it's a spectrum. So, you know, things like we post something on social media and we obsess about whether people would like it. Or it might be that we say no to a social event or perhaps we attend something because we care about what they might think if we don't attend or we buy clothes to impress other people. So typically we, we tend to either look good or avoid looking bad. And so, is there anything good in that? Sorry to interrupt. But is there any is that because obviously we do things for a reason. So is there any if we had no I guess awareness and we just really didn't care what people thought then maybe the as you talk about the spectrum maybe the extreme of that is like I don't know people walking around in their pajamas because they literally don't care do you know what I mean like a silly example but is there a good is there something good in it that makes us do it or is it all bad to just I think this is where when we have thoughts and feelings and a story that sort of is created in the mind like they're not always just negative they can be positive so there might be some thoughts that we experience that might help serve us in alignment mm. with our values. So what I'd be saying is that when you have those thoughts, which is a piece of information, I'd be keeping an open mind and saying, well, is this helping me? And if it is, that's great. So in terms of like it's serving a purpose, it 100% serves a purpose, but it just not might be helpful. So if you were to look at like human beings, you know, we have evolved through belonging and connection. Okay. 
And it's important that we actually care about what people think, because if we didn't care about what people think, we wouldn't survive in the tribe. Hmm. Okay, so it's a real threat that if we upset somebody or we get negative feedback, that's a real threat to our status in the group. So actually, it serves a evolutionary purpose. It's just not helpful in today's society in all contexts. So we're not in a jungle anymore. It's not life or death. And I really love this quote. I don't know if you've heard this before, but it's by a guy called Charles Cooley. And it just always slaps me in the face. And it's, I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. So I have heard that and it's absolutely brilliant. I think, yeah, when you read it for the first time, you're like, what? But if you really sit with it and think about it, exactly, yeah, I'm not what I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what you what I think you think I am. It's literally so that yeah, that is really powerful. And I think for, if you've never heard it before, you might be listening thinking, wait, what? Think either way I think about it is again with the example I just gave, maybe motherhood is something for me. It's like, you know, if I'm talking to my sister and I say, Oh, but you know, I'd never want people to think this, this, or this, she'll go, Adrian, who are people? When you say that, who are people? Do you mean your do you mean other mothers do you mean your friends do you mean your mother-in-law like who is it when you say people and I think that that quote yeah you're you're it really speaks to me as well it's like uh, our perception of what we think people think of us is is I guess for better or for worse really important to us yeah absolutely and I remember a time when I was young and I think we've all experienced this I remember really distinctly being in a group of friends and I was very sporty and I remember one of my friends saying to me like really harmlessly because it's that kind of like banter that you'd experience with groups of friends and he said oh Dean you're really stupid and I remember thinking about that at the time and then all of a sudden your mind develops this narrative and I remember thinking yeah I am stupid you know I'm not getting great grades at school um you know sometimes I do say stupid things And then obviously, like, you know, we want to remain connected to the tribe. So then you start to avoid things. So you start to think, well, I'm just not going to say anything because if I don't say anything, I'm not going to look stupid. And then that impacts your ability to then, you know, develop in things like reading out loud in the group or, you know, engaging in activities where you can actually voice your opinion. You'd start to retract. I think it's just an example of things happen but there's also our story of what happens mm-hmm. and this is really pertinent in this in this topic of caring about what other people think and i think there's definitely some tools that we can use to to manage this and i think that first of all you hit the nail on the head at the start let's just normalize this that it's totally part of the human mm-hmm. dna to care about what people think let's start with really noticing and becoming aware of when we have those thoughts that perhaps don't help And the techniques that I tend to use with clients is once you've noticed those thoughts, start to observe them. Because when we can start to separate us from our thoughts and feelings, we start to create an detachment from that. And we can do that by really simple things like just talking it through with somebody. You know, one of the most powerful therapies is actually just talking, getting it off our chest. Because as soon as we've got it off our chest, we can think more rationally writing it down and I've seen you post a couple of times on this around journaling so when we write our thoughts down when we actually write it down we look at it we go wow was I even thinking that so we start to create that separation and I think also we often overplay and exaggerate in our minds the idea of caring about what other people think because most people have other concerns (laughs) yeah and when people start to challenge us or they, I don't know, have an opinion about the change that we're experiencing or the habits that we're embedding. When somebody starts to comment on that, it makes real sense because they're also human. They don't like uncertainty. They don't like change. So it's impacting them. But it doesn't mean that it's your problem. It means that it's something that they have to deal with. Mm. So, you know, change is a psychological transition. Okay. And that's when it comes back to If we constantly rely on other people, we're going to be a victim of our own thoughts and feelings and what other people want. Back to that quote. Mm -hmm. But if we've got clarity on our values and therefore we have boundaries, we we can conquer whatever we want. But it doesn't make it easy. It it is really hard. And 
you know, all of this stuff is really easy to talk about and say, yeah, try these tools and it takes time. Mm. Yeah. And as you were talking that, I actually remember I heard this about this study recently that just kind of blew my mind. And I really wish now that I could remember the name of the professor that did this study. So I'm going to find it out because yeah, it was really important, but he basically, the study was about this idea of you know, what we think and what we're told and how much that implements and and how much that affects us. And so basically the study was that, you know, the professor looked at a group of young children, maybe aged four to five, and he picked out the three children. He identified three children in the class and said, you know, these three children from their from observing them and their work you know they have a high level of iq they have a high understanding they're going to be high achieving academics they are really really smart kids these three are you know exceptional he's you know the teachers were made aware of it and their parents were made aware of it so the 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 study concluded like years and years and years later so it went on i think it was maybe 15 to 18 years later to then you know revisit these three students and said yes they he was right you know they all scored the highest they all were super academic high achievers and you know he's he, they said he was right and so they kind of said okay how did you identify that what was it about these three children and he said absolutely nothing he picked the three names at random but what he was trying to prove was that because he told the teacher these three children are exceptional because he told their parents and also them, you know, they were then told, wow, you three, you're really smart. So you're going to have harder work or you're going to have more books or you're going to have a different approach because you're really smart. So you can take it as a result. They, they, you know, uh, achieved and excelled. And it's kind of, I was thinking about it and I guess in reverse, you know, and the story that you just shared, when we hear that language, you know, my son is nine years old. When we hear that language that tells you, oh, you're a fast runner or, oh, you're not very smart or, oh, you're not good at that. You know, we, that actually can inform and I guess become true because we then act out in a way, in a way and behave in a way that is in line with that. So if it can, if it can be that powerful to say, oh, you're really smart or you're really fast or you're good at music or then how powerful that we know the reverse is true, right? We know that it can limit and stifle us, but I just, that blew my mind listening to that. The fact that he literally just said, I just picked the three names at random. It's like amazing. That, that's a great story. And when, when people say things to us, sometimes and mostly they have good intentions because kids are kids, right? You know, yeah. and, and people say things. And I think what's really important and the thing that was so liberating with the story that I shared is that somebody said something to me and that's all they said. So what happened was somebody said, Dean, you're stupid. But that wasn't caused me the challenge. What caused me the challenge was the story that I created. So now that I've realised that, I can go back and retell the story because mm. I was the one that created it. So if I can take responsibility for, the, for that, then I can change the narrative, which is really liberating. Mm. And, and I think that's a skill that, you know, we can all develop is, is actually exploring why we think certain things that we do, explore where that might have come from with support. Mm. And actually, you know, we can free ourselves from the story that we've created from our past. Yes. And the labels, you know, I think that what you just said, the story, I think for a lot of people, we all have it, right? We all have a story, I'm sure, whether it's you think back to being at school or you think back to your peers or your your siblings or your parents, like what's the story? What's what's the label that they gave you? I often say that to people, you know, did they say you talk too much or did they say you're too competitive or short tempered or because I think often you can be given that label when you're eight years old. And then you're 30 years old and you still think that you have to wear that label when actually you might have completely changed as a person, but everyone in your family always says, oh yeah, you know, he's the short-tempered one or he's the competitive one or even because once you, you know, maybe you kicked off after losing a board game when you were 10 and now it's like, you know, 20 years later, you still have that that story, like you say, and that label. Uh, and one actually that a big topic that I wanted to talk to you about is quite a big one, but this label is perfectionism and perfectionist. So I think that when people say, oh, this person's a perfectionist or when they say, oh, you know, the reason I haven't done this yet is because I'm a perfectionist, it's seen in a negative way and it's described as being a bad thing. But what I'd love to hear from you, Dean, as an expert on this is, I guess like what is perfectionism is it a bad thing or is there some good in it because again I in my experience I think there's always something good there that's like well maybe actually you can use it to your advantage because if it if you're constantly iterating and checking and redoing something and rethinking it then surely it's going to make it better but when does being a perfectionist benefit us and when is it detrimental yeah that's a great question um it's a really difficult one to 
to answer. And again, I'd go back to it being on a spectrum. So if, if we look at a definition of perfectionism, I would think of it in the context of it being something along the lines of striving for flawlessness, really setting high standards, always wanting to overachieve, always wanting to be your best. So that's what I would typically see in somebody that's having perfectionist tendencies or, or at least a definition of that. And I think often the cause, as we've spoken about already, is that internal dialogue, that inner critic, that experience of our inner worlds that's causing this perfectionism and the perception of others. And again, it makes real sense. So it is a survival instinct. It makes sense to, to have those perfectionist tendencies when you look through that lens, because we want to fit into the tribe. So aside from that evolutionary basis and biological basis for us having this driver of perfectionism, it's also added via the social constructs and experiences that we have in life through pressure at school or you know, constantly wanting to do well in exams. And, you know, this happens at a really young age and it's, it's a real concern. You know, parent pressure, you know, you, you see that playing out in young football kids or other sports. Social media, you know, constantly wanting to be perfect and, and people putting out their best image the whole time, um, needing to constantly look good. So I'd say that that kind of describes the basis of perfectionism, but the sort of signs that you'd look out for are, just really unrealistic expectations of, of yourself and others. Um, you might sometimes see this playing out with your boss in terms of expectations of themselves. And, you know, that might play through working hard or it might be the expectations they put on you. Another one is procrastination. It sounds like the opposite of working hard, but actually it's so debilitating perfectionism that it actually plays out as a symptom of procrastination. So we tend to therefore avoid making mistakes we might work really hard to keep up that kind of perception of perfectionism. We tend to have black or white thinking, um, you know, which is anything that's less than failure isn't good enough. We can have catastrophic thinking. So, you know, if I make a mistake in front of my co-workers, then, you know, I'm just not going to survive. I'm going to lose my job. Um, there's Things like time traveling. So, you know, we worry about the future. What if I don't do well in this presentation? You know, I'm not going to be able to, you know, achieve my best. And I guess it does serve a purpose in some ways, because what we might see play out is that it allows us to really push forward. You know, so we achieve those quick wins. We have that short term success. We see instant gratification. So we have that need for control. So it does serve a purpose in some ways it just might not be helpful and the question is you know for what cost does perfectionism come hmm. so it, it, in terms of overcoming that and again like you know i'd encourage the listeners to think about what their own strategies are these are just i guess a framework but coming back to what behaviors are you seeing that is not serving you and when we can start to identify that we can start to look at the feelings and thoughts that we're experiencing and then we can apply just some simple mindfulness techniques. You know, we talked about some already, but really starting to unhook from those thoughts that we're experiencing. So what we tend to do, and this can be helpful for some people, I would encourage doing it, you know, when you're feeling calm and you've got some time and using your journal to actually write down your thoughts, challenge assumptions. But in the moment when you're experiencing unhelpful behaviours, thoughts and feelings, Unhook from those internal experiences by pressing that pause button, really noticing the experience that's happening inside of you and then choosing how do I actually want to react right now in this moment that's going to help serve me. So in the context of perfectionism, if you're worried about making mistakes, perhaps, what can you try that's going to actually help you become imperfect? OK, so. A couple of examples might be, you know, just sending some emails with mistakes on it, you know, test your theory, you know, saying no, telling people that you're challenged, um, sorry, that you're tired. So just actually walking towards behaviours that are going to help you become that person that you want to be in spite of the perfectionist tendencies that you have. And a big part of it is just letting go of that need for control, you know, and as a human being, like control is really important because it means that we're safe. It means that we're protective. But actually, it's an illusion. There's no such thing as control. And when we can actually start to let go of that, we can start to manage this in a way that helps serve us rather than hinder us. 
Yes, and Dean, for someone like me, even hearing you say that, you know, we try and control things, but it's an illusion. I'm like, <gasps> that's terrifying because I'm such a like, I know that I'm someone who plans and I like to yeah control is something that I like to feel like I have I like to feel like I have agency and control and I can plan things and I can make things happen and I can do the work because that's the way I get it done so whenever I speak to friends that are like you know what Adrienne you can have a plan but ultimately you're planning for a future that doesn't exist because you can't control anything I'm like oh my gosh I'm breathing into a paper bag right now plans though are really important so these feelings of uncertainty that we have and the need for control and that survival mechanism we have, like that's actually really helpful because if we didn't have it, we wouldn't survive. So rather than getting rid of it, let's embrace it because we can't get rid of it. So actually having a plan helps settle those emotions. It helps uh-huh. reduce uncertainty. So having a plan is is actually really helpful. It's just when it comes to things like our values and boundaries, we want to hold them lightly because yeah. when we, so as an example, you know, one of my values that plays out that is both helpful but unhelpful is fairness. Like, fairness is really important to me, but I know that life is unfair. Yeah. And if I hold that value really tightly, it's not going to help serve me in all instances. So again, like, there's, it's quite nuanced and complex, some of these things. So it's about having a plan that let's actually sit in that grey space, which feels really uncomfortable, but that's kind of what life is like. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a little better because I do love a plan. And I'll be honest with you, my birthday is in September and September is always like the start of the year for me. It's like the new year, you know, like, like I think what people talk about in January, I do that in September. It's the back to school vibes. It's the new year. And I plan literally, you know, professional goals, personal goals, you know, races that I want to do, fitness goals, uh, financial goals. I do it all in September every single year. And I make that plan. And and I reflect on it, you know, the year after. And it's interesting because, of course, you know, it is an illusion of control. I can't plan everything and control everything. But I feel a little bit better now that you've said that actually having a plan is a good thing. Like, you know, loosely held, things in the plan might change. But having the plan is good. Yeah, 100%. And I think goals can be really helpful if they are underpinned by a bigger purpose and why Hmm. because what happens is we set goals so somebody will say dean i want to lose 20 pounds and i'll say why and often it's because they've seen something that they like on instagram and it's not actually underpinned by something that's really important to them when you can connect with that you then start to move away from achieving an outcome and see it more as a journey and then when you're on a journey you realize that it's actually more complex than it's more ambiguous and you actually set yourself up to deal with setbacks, deal with obstacles, because that's actually the reality of life. So goals are goals are really, really important. It's just in the context of it being underpinned by something that really matters to you. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of things that really matter to you, Dean, I want to talk to you about the power hour. So I want to know what motivates you to get up out of bed every day. What time do you typically wake up in the morning and what's the first hour of your day like? So for me, I get up at 6am and I have to have a coffee. That is my, um, that is my, I'll be talking about planning and routine. I I need my coffee. Um, Whether whether I actually need it is one thing, but I need my coffee. But you like it. (laughs) I love coffee. I love coffee. Black Americano. Um, I tend to do exercise. And again, I sort of loosely hold this because sometimes I have my own community where I jump on a call with them on some days. So that's really nice. So I, I have flexibility, but I like to get up, have a coffee, do some exercise and and do the things that are most important in the day at the start. Because mm-hmm. for me, that's when I've got most of my energy. So I look at like, what are the one or two things that I can do in the morning that's going to make the biggest difference to my day and to my week? Because, you know, if I exercise later on in the day, I know that my mind works in a way where I'm thinking, shall I train later? And it comes around to I'm always having this internal dialogue. So I like to get out of the way in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Start that day, break that sweat, tick it off the list. I mean, of course, you're talking to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm right there <laughs> with you with the power hour, with the morning movement. But do you think that with all the work that you've done, all the people that you've worked with, you know, do you think it's important for people to what would you think of the concept of taking the first hour every day and doing something really intentional like a workout or working on a creative project? I think 
that first hour in the morning sets you up for the day ahead. So if I was to wake up and I was to listen to the news, particularly at the moment, and I've actually had to set a boundary around this, a lot of it's quite toxic at the moment. And actually, like, if I was to spend an hour just listening to that, I don't think it's going to help serve me in that day. So I think, you know, spending that first hour on things that you enjoy, things that actually create motivation for that day, things that are really important to you, is going to have a massive impact on your mood, your feelings, your thoughts, how you interact with others throughout that day. So I think it's really critical. Yeah. Well, there you go, everyone listening. It's not just me. Dean is an expert. So thank you, Dean, for confirming. (laughs) Okay. So now I'd like to move on to my quick fire round. So are you ready for that? I am ready. All right. So first question of my quick fire round is what is one item that you have, something that you own, that you've bought, that brings you joy, that you absolutely love, that you bought for £100 or less? I'm going to go for my whiteboard. And I didn't have one for a while. And now I don't know how I actually managed myself in the day. So my whiteboard where I can literally create a visual board, I can capture notes, I can just, things come into my head and I can quickly capture it. And it's made a real difference to my day, both in the personal and work context. Great. Yeah, game changer. And also very good for the environment because you're not writing and wasting loads of paper. So that's cool. Okay, next one is what book do you recommend that everyone should read? This is a really hard one because there's so many books that I've read um, that's influenced me. And, you know, Professor Steve Peters' book, who, you know, really helped me in my period of time when I was developing as a practitioner, The Chimp Paradox. But I'm actually going to go with a more recent book that I read, which is from a woman called Lisa Fieldman Barrett. And she is a neuroscientist and she wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. And she really simplifies the complexity of um, how we think and how we behave and actually challenges quite a lot of the narrative around the neuroscience. Great. Okay, I'm going to check that out. That sounds right up my street. Uh, next question is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who wants to better understand their own mind? I would say find the tools that work for you to allow you to be more present in the moment. And I think that's the only time when we're alive. So when we're in the past or when we're in the future, we're not really in that present moment. We're not in that state of flow, connecting with people. You know, we're we're not engaging as fully (laughs) in the example of me and Levi. Being present in the moment is the real gift that I think that we have as a human. Great. And my last question is, If you had one extra hour of each day, I'm giving you the gift of a bonus hour, what would you use that extra hour to do? Family is really important to me. And whilst they are down in Devon, where I'm from, and I'm currently based in London, I would accumulate all that time to go and spend some time with my niece and nephew. Mm, Spending time. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Dean. And before we wrap up, can you tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can find your work? How can people get in touch? Yeah, so you can visit my Instagram at uh, Dean Leak. That's L-E-A-K. So Dean Leak Coach. Or you can visit my website at thepackmethod.com. And the pack is P-A-C. Awesome. Thank you. And I really recommend that you do that. So, you know, if you're listening right now, grab your phone, dive in, find his work, find him on Instagram. I really like the posts that you share. I often save them if I'm, if I'm, you know, having a scrolling when I shouldn't be, and I don't really have the time to be looking at my phone, then I'll hit save and then go back and read them properly later. So I really do encourage you to dive in and explore his work. Thank you so much, Dean, for being a guest on the show. And thanks everyone for listening. As always, I really appreciate absolutely every single one of you giving your time and listening to the show. So yeah, rate, review on iTunes, get in touch, let us know if you enjoyed this episode. Stay safe and have an awesome week. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 